0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak at our 54th Annual Members Meeting. We very much look forward to your remarks. Well, thank you very much, Carla, and thanks to Steve and and Margot, and to all of the members of your group, uh, a hearty band under challenging times, I'm sure. These are not sunny days for the community interested in U.S.-China relations. In fact, it's a little bit more like a, a freeze of a new Cold War. So I thought to get us off on a different foot, I might start with a story. A few years ago, uh, I took my late mother to visit a counselor because she was feeling rather blue. And after a good long chat, the counselor said, "Uh, Mrs. Ullick, you need to learn to embrace your mistakes. So my mom turned to me, gave me a big smile, then gave me a very big hug. So embrace your mistakes. I guess that's the the current mantra in the U.S. commentary today about U.S.-China relations, but today I'd like to offer a different and perhaps contrarian assessment. So I'm gonna make five observations, concluding with some suggestions that I hope uh, will be constructive. First, uh, when President Xi assumed office in 2012, he prepared a documentary film about the end of the Soviet Union and he directed all the party cadres to watch the film, all 86.68 million of them at that time. Now, if that film had been developed in Europe, the story would have been about Gorbachev who helped end the Cold War. Well, the Chinese version is a little different. In the Chinese version, Gorbachev is the fool who abandoned the Communist Party, destroyed his country, left everything in ruin, and the not-so-subtle message is it won't happen here. The fall of the Soviet Union still casts a long shadow over Beijing. And indeed, I believe if President Xi had been unable to uh, control COVID-19, it would have posed a threat to the party legitimacy. As many of you as students of China know, disease, famine, natural disasters often foretold the end of dynasties. In contrast, I think at this moment, Xi feels that China has had relative success, but he's still somewhat in a defensive posture. Second point, I would describe China's approach to the world today as globalization with Chinese characteristics, and it follows two tracks. The first track actually builds off the speech I gave uh, to this group some 15 years ago, and that as part of the existing international institution structure, the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, the WHO, the UN agencies. China is starting, or has tried to push those towards Chinese interests and norms. Now this really shouldn't be a surprise. All countries tend to do so. The bigger surprise is that the US has actually failed to do this within these institutions and is now starting to recognize the cost of, of, uh, of that abandonment. But there is a second track, and it follows in the Chinese tradition of tributary states. Here, the idea is that China will provide benefits to others as long as they show respect, and definitely no criticism of the Chinese Communist Party. The Belt and Road is a good example of this. It's a model of infrastructure-led development that China has used elsewhere, It's taking the similar approach with information and data sources uh, under state control. I believe at this point the G will recognize he needs to moderate some of the propaganda overreach and the heavy handed response to international critics. Chinese historians will recognize that past spasms of patriotic or party fervor, for example, in the Boxer Rebellion or in the Cultural Revolution, scared the world as opposed to persuading the world. So we'll see how Xi handles this in the upcoming Congresses that we'll see over the next couple of days. I think we already got a little flavor of it uh, in the WHO assembly meeting for how he'll be positioned. Third point, US politics in China. Well, President Trump switched to a policy of confrontation, but his focus was primarily on the bilateral trade deficit. And after some three years of tariffs and arguments, he produced a purchase package that was always questionable, and now I believe is a fantasy. Uh, Chad Bone of the Peterson Institute just produced a paper either this week or late last week that shows the numbers so far and they're not even at the halfway level of what they would need. And of course, that doesn't include the categories that are not part of purchases that actually lead to substantial declines. However, Trump is gonna need to shift blame in an election year. So we can expect a lot of attacks and blame on, on China, which we've already seen, He may have to have some restraint because he still wants an economic recovery and a big clash with China will unnerve markets. Other Republicans, however, have expanded the chorus quite considerably. They focused on issues such as human rights, which Trump doesn't focus on, Hong Kong, internal affairs, Taiwan, security in the South China Sea, other economic conditions, the Wuhan virus. The objectives of the complaints are not really clear to me. I don't believe one can contain China. I don't think anyone thinks you could get support for that. Is it to decouple? Well, for what purpose and what end? At the same time, I don't think the Democratic Party can be seen as being soft on China. On trade issues, as Carlo knows well, they tended to be more protectionists anyway in the first place, although Republicans are now giving them a race for their money on that. I would expect the democratic policy to be more multilateral in nature, but still somewhat fuzzy. And the bottom line is, I think we have to expect the rhetoric to worsen in the course of this campaign. I keep hoping that uh, when next year turns around, there'll still be some fluidity, because I believe that reality will intrude. That brings me to the fourth point. The new conventional wisdom in the US Uh, is that cooperation with China failed, and I take a contrarian view on that. I wrote an article in the National Interest in March and April that outlines this in some detail, but let me give you the highlights. Keep in mind, China used to be a wartime enemy and then supporter of proxy enemies in North Korea and and, uh, in Vietnam, and it moved from that to trying to help the United States on issues such as proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and missiles, where it used to be sort of the number one proliferator. As part of that, it cooperated with the United States on Iran and North Korea with nuclear programs. From 2000 to 2018, prodded by US diplomacy, China supported UN sanctions and 182 of 190 resolutions. It's the biggest other contributor to UN peacekeeping. Uh, When I worked on issues such as Darfur, China was actually quite supportive in our efforts uh, with the Sudanese government. On the economic side, China has been the largest contributor to global economic growth. Its current account surplus went from 10% to zero, so that adds demand to the international economy. It no longer manipulates its exchange rate. It was the fastest growing destination for US exports for 15 years until Trump In the global financial crisis, it had the largest fascist stimulus. It worked very effectively with uh, Paulson and Geithner and uh, me at the World Bank and the IMF. Even in the area of the WTO, the much maligned WTO, China's commitments, of course, ran much deeper than other developing economies such as Brazil uh, and India. Uh, And by and large, it kept its numerical obligation. The weaker problems were on areas which are harder to measure such as IPR enforcement. Even here, you started to see under China has created a whole series of IPR courts. Foreigners have won most of those cases. The penalties, I think, are still not high enough. But the point is, there's been a lot of benefits from the U.S. cooperation and work with China. In the area of climate change, uh, China knows the criticality of this issue, even though it's now the largest emitter. If the, if the glaciers in the Himalayas melt, it'll be an economic or ecosystem disaster throughout China. Uh, it now is one of the leaders in non fossil fuel technologies. In areas of animal conservation, an area topic I have an interest, people were very pleased when China accepted the elephant ivory ban. Uh, it did something similar by the netizen community with shark fin soup, although it has had a problem with permitting illegal wildlife trafficking as we are seeing now in terms of some of the effect on the coronavirus, and I think Chinese policies could change. Even on the very sensitive issue of Taiwan, if one goes back and looks at the exchanges that Nixon and Kissinger had with the Chinese 50 years ago, I think one might be surprised that Taiwan today is a democracy able to operate pretty autonomously in the international system, but obviously not as an independent state. Now, this is dependent not only on Chinese policy, but also on U.S. policy. But my point with all these items, and frankly, there are others, is not that all is well, it's that we shouldn't take the benefits for granted. Um, And we need to recognize that those who argue that cooperation has failed are flat wrong, and they're misleading themselves and the U.S. public. In effect, there's no holidays from the work of diplomacy. So finally, um, I want to close with some some suggestions for a different approach. And I would recommend three parts. First, the United States needs to identify the priority elements of its global agenda. Mine would be a combination of today's realities plus traditional interests. So just to give you a quick list, I would have biological security, including biotechnology, as a very... Cold and practical measure, US deaths from COVID-19 are now about almost the same total of the fatalities we had in Vietnam and Korea. So it gives you a sense of the costs of getting this wrong. Another item would be an inclusive economic recovery with opportunity and appropriate security, environment and energy security, digital security and innovation, dealing with proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, to hostile regional hegemons, the combination of terror, public order, law enforcement, the future of freedom, and of course, the future of China. Now, my second part would be to work with allies to agree on such an agenda or approaches based on such an agenda. Now, clearly, China policy is critical for partners in the Indo-Pacific region, but I think one of the key dimensions often overlooked is the European role. Europe has enjoyed China's benefits, but it's also seen the, the snapping of sharp teeth. Um, I expect that most Europeans don't want to become tributary states, but they might accommodate a benign neutralism. Henry Kissinger, who I know has been active uh, with this group over the years, has made this point when he's probed about whether Europe might become a strategic appendage, as he says, of Eurasia. So Europe could tip the balance, and it's very much in the United States' interest in dealing with China to try to discuss the fuller agenda that I mentioned and see how we also would deal with China in that context. The third and last part. My effort to try to find mutual ground with China does not mean the United States should retreat from its fundamental values. In fact, contrary to Trump, who has been very quiet on these, I think this should always be part of U.S. policy even as we seek to cooperate with China. Ronald Reagan spoke out on the principles of the United States, even as he negotiated and sought cooperation with the Soviet Union. Now, the starting point, of course, is the example we set at home. Then it's the support we give to other friends of freedom. And a critical element with China is that the United States should always emphasize human aspirations, not name calling. I still believe there's a debate among the public in China about the future, including some of the mistakes and the the problems of the Chinese Communist Party. So we wanna appeal to the Chinese public, not insult them. I wouldn't use freedoms as a club, but I'd use them as the beacon. So I wanna thank all of you as part of this group for your ongoing commitment and interest in Sino-American ties. They are gonna be absolutely fundamental for both countries in the world uh, in the years ahead and 2021 could turn out to be a year of key choices. My last thought is, there's a lot of frustrations the United States might have with China or with other countries in the world. From my experience, it's always important to keep your eye on what you want to achieve. What about the results that you want? What can you get done? Not just an expression of your frustrations. And I think our policy over the past few years has emphasized frustrations with very little on what it has accomplished thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.